It's very hard for anyone, no matter what their opinion is about these issues or what they do in life, to step out of their own comfort zone and their own community. I'm Eddie Moretti. Welcome to the Vice Podcast. My guest uh, this week is Frank Rich. He's a writer, a writer at large for New York Magazine. He's also the executive producer of Veep uh, on HBO, which is now in its third season. About to start shooting its third season. Yeah. yeah. So what are you doing now on the show then? What's We're getting the... scripts ready, panicking, okay. uh, figuring out some casting of some new characters, and uh, it's exciting. And so what's the hiatus like? How many months do you have between... It seems like there's none, but technically, <laughs> I mean, the last season went up in mid-April. Yeah. Uh, for ten weeks after that, we were still editing some of the final episodes when we started. So I guess it sort of all really ended in mid-June. Mid-June. And then. And then it kicks up we, again. Yeah. We, by mid-July, we were having read-throughs of the first three new episodes. Yeah. And so. It's uh, it's it's a train, a fast moving train. You know what this is like. I mean, it's uh, well, I you know. So in full disclosure, we have a show on HBO as well, but it's totally different. Um, um, so it's a, so I'm curious. Um, what you know? What is the process like? Um, how do you get to a concept uh, the next season? You know. So. Well, it's it's interesting. You know, uh, HBO like a lot of uh, sort of premium premium cable networks likes their series to have an arc for the sure. whole season rather than being just discrete episodes the way networks traditionally were. It's like a 10-hour film. A ten, well, or right, but since we're... More or less. More or less. But since we're a half-hour comedy, it's not, oh, right. so, you know, sorry. Game of Thrones. It's a, a five-hour film. It's a five-hour film, but also... It's not quite as doesn't have to be as plot driven as you know House of Cards or Boardwalk Empire, or Game of Thrones or or uh, Homeland. Yeah. But still, we want something to be happening, and uh, and so we're a lot of conversation about that, mm -hmm. and then the individual episodes we fly a bit by the seat of our pants, but we have a bunch of writers led by the show's creator Armando Iannucci. Armando Iannucci. Yeah. And and um, what happens is. There's a version of the script, and then he has the cast, many of whom have you know tremendous improv chops. They've Second in, City, UCB, yeah. uh, the Groundlings in L.A. They all more or less come from those places, including Julia, who was in Second City and SNL early in her career. Right. Um, he then says in a room not unlike this, like a conference room, he'll right. say, uh, "All right, take the scripts in hand." And get up on your feet, and let's sort of block it out. Obviously, you have no sets or anything, mm -hmm. and use whatever lines you want from the script. Mm -hmm. But if you have your own ideas, do it. You don't have to be brilliantly witty or whatever. Mm -hmm. The writers sit around the periphery of the room, take notes, take the best material, cannibalize it, put it in the next draft of the script. Then the process repeats itself over right. a s series of weeks for each episode. So it becomes almost like a uh, spin and wash cycle. Right. And that's why the script gets to be so intense and so so verbal. And then there may be line changes, a little bit of improv when we're shooting, but it's not like Curb Your Enthusiasm where they actually do improvise. Right, right. So it, it must mean you have like this really, really committed cast. It sounds like a lot of work for them. 
they're really committed, and I think one reason they are committed, they love the empowerment of it. What because do you mean? they they're they're they are oh. creative artists, and so they like the fact that they're full collaborators in the show. That's what Armando wanted when he cast them. Mm -hmm. And for many of them, some like someone like Matt Walsh, who was a founder of UCB, uh, used to in series television, some some cases you go, you get your sides, you hit your mark, you do your three days and you're out. It was like Phoning it in in a way. Yeah, right? I mean, or, they, I would. Yeah, or or at least doing, not being a having a full voice in the creative process. And here, everyone has a full voice. And while Armando is the showrunner and makes the ultimate decisions, mm -hmm. um, people are really in, invested. Invested. In it. It, it, it's it, they really sound invested, and it shows. And the audience is responding because it season two was much bigger audience, right? It, I mean, it, it, it was. It really and, took off. And I mean, that's a good thing for every show, but with, with Veep, it really felt like season two, everything gelled and the audience it, responded. It did, and I think it's because people got used to the style. The actors got more and more uh, into the characters. The writers internalized the voices of the actors more and more. And um, it's sort of, it's exciting. I'm excited about... Uh, Season three, even though none of it, as we're speaking, has yet been shot, yeah. but we'll get there. So I want to figure out where this and it's, your excitement fits into the rest of your life, and right? Because you're a ser serious writer about serious things, from you know, um, from the American political scene to foreign affairs and you know, Obama stents on Egypt or something. Mm -hmm. But I'm going to jump around. And Please. I want to jump around. That's my to, life. I well, jump around. Yeah. All the well, just because it's appropriate, you're so excited about um, um, the development and the process of this show and the commitment of the cast. And I wanted to ask you, um, I think it was a few months ago, Wired Magazine put out an issue called um, The Platinum Age of Television. That in there, you know, for a lot of interesting reasons, it was a very reasoned... Uh, piece that had a lot of analytics and data um, appropriate for Wired, but they argued, in a way, te television never been better. I think it's true. I think it's true. I mean, I, I'm a child of television. I grew up with it. I, I, when I think, though, of the television I watched as a kid, you know, Leave it to Beaver, Gunsmoke. I mean, some of it was great. I Love Lucy was great. MASH. MASH was already, I was already in college. MASH was terrific. Okay. Um, that was already a step forward, Mash. But, right. But I, I, you know, I, watching in the early '60s, there wasn't anything as sophisticated. As, I mean, look, there was great stuff. There was the tail end of the Twilight Zone, yeah. uh, which is genius, genius television. Yeah. Um, but there was a lot of good stuff, and some of it holds up, and some of it doesn't. But I think there's been a fundamental change, and right. uh, some of it has to do with television, but not all of it has to do with television. Obviously, the advent of pay cable. And sponsor-free television makes a huge difference. If you don't have to sell post toasties or in back in the day cigarettes right, with what you're doing, you, 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 you don't have to answer to it. Like you don't have to worry about moving products. That's that's one thing. But also, I think what's happened is that the movie business has changed. That as mm -hmm. movies have become much much more about films to be candid about it that are aimed at teenage boys right. that are franchises and tentpole films, yeah. not that some of them aren't good, but the fact We'll that, talk about that later. Yes, yeah, <laughs> but, but, but that's, that's crowded out, you know, the kind of, uh, the Steve Soderbergh's, the Scorsese, some of them are still active, and, but, but basically it's harder to get on an adult film. By adult, I mean a sophisticated feature. It has to be at Fox Searchlight, it has to be an indie. 
the movie studio, there was a time when Paramount and 20th Century Fox made movies like MASH, you know, right. to take the movie version right. of that. They, they rarely do now. So that's why a lot of that talent has drifted into television and there's some great talent. So television has taken up that slack. And, and there's been a similar change in the theater, which is not incidental. I was a theater critic for the New York Times throughout yes. the 1980s. Yeah. Famously. And, well, fam or infamously, <laughs> as the case may be. But one thing I discovered, uh, by the 1990s, a lot of the writers and directors that I'd liked as a theater critic and who were mainstays of serious theater in New York were all writing in television. Right. They were all working on The Sopranos or Six Feet Under right. or you know, also a Homicide. They had all uh, uh, The Wire. The Wire. They, the, a lot of the credits were people who normally had plays at Playwrights Horizons, the Manhattan Theater Club, because it's very hard to get a play on. It's very hard to do serious theater mm. uh, commercially in New York, particularly mm. on Broadway, it, where there are more and more, the equivalent of tentpole movies are mm -hmm. tourist musicals, spectacles, right. Right. Uh, Disney musicals. So it's been a natural progression, I mm. think, into television of talent. Mm -hmm. So that's sort of there's kind of forces on the in industry side and the talent side and, and, and it makes a lot of sense. What do you think about audiences? Because it's fine if the, it, it, it's, it, you know, it's got to be some kind of reciprocal, you know, dynamic here. If the talent is going in and creating more interesting television programming, the audience is certainly kind of saying now that this is the way that they'd like to immerse themselves in stories, i.e. longer form. The, and, and part of that is, you know, um, also a question of distribution and video on demand and consuming these things and right. kind of weird five-hour binge sessions rather than the week-to-week -week tune in. And, and so what do you think of that? Like well, what's I happening think, with the well, people? I don't know if it's really changed that much. It's deceptive in a way because keep in mind when there were three networks and just broadcast television, 30, 40 million, 50 million people would tune in to watch a half-hour sitcom. Right. Now what's happened, I think this is great, there's all these different channels, different types of entertainment. So while a Breaking Bad may be for a very arguably sophisticated audience that wants to binge and wants serious drama and mm -hmm. top-level writing, mm -hmm. if you just want to watch Hollywood Tonight, you can, you can. On, you know, on right. entertainment tonight on right. television. You can, or game shows, or certain reality shows, which also are all up and down the scale culturally. And even the biggest hits in today's television, the mm -hmm. biggest hits on network, the biggest hits, you know, Game of Thrones or Homeland, has they'd be flops by the number standards of the 1960s on broadcast television. There's just so many more options. There's so many more options, yeah. and so it's great. The more diversity yeah. of programming, and uh, there'll always be a diverse audience uh, yeah. in, in America, and there'll yeah. always be an audience that only wants high-end, an audience that only wants crap, and an audience that wants mix and match. Yeah. And so now it's much easier to access whatever part of that menu you want. Yeah. So I know you're excited about Veep, but um, just describing that landscape, right? I think in a lot of ways that um, the television franchise, a la you know, True Blood or Veep or uh, Game of Thrones is the kind of most important cultural unit right now. It's the thing that people, you know, I think gravitate to more so than, and I think like the summer blockbusters even kind of bear that out. There's like less, it feels like less of the cultural energy is being directed at at, at 
at feature film franchises and more at premium television franchises. It's incredible. It's, it's incredibly right? it's exciting. Like, I mean, it's not something I anticipated. You know, right. it was sort of in play when I started working on V. Three yeah, how years did ago. It, yeah, how did but, that happen? Well, what happened was that um, I, I I sort of started a, a, a sideline at HBO five years ago, talking with when the company's leadership changed and they asked me to be involved as sort of a consultant talking about the quality of their shows or not just overall philosophy when I arrived a lot of the great hits were about to go off the air they were you know the Sopranos Sex and the City Entourage they were all six feet under Big Love they were all nearing the ends of their run so the cupboard was a little bare and there was a sort of free-floating discussion which I was one player has a kind a, of strategist sort of yeah not even strategist. not even that sophisticated just just what do we like wh- what is what do you like yeah. also yeah and and one and so and you know and I, I'm just one opinion among many at a table but it, as you know it's a fairly intimate company so it's yeah. not like some huge Pentagon like bureaucracy and you know you talk about things one thing that they were always uh, interested in was finding a uh, Washington show, a, a smart Washington show. It didn't have to necessarily be a comedy. Right. <laughs> they had done one that had not, that had expired called K Street before I was there that was done by George so- Clooney and- Soderbergh? Or- Soderbergh did yeah. it. It was a limited run thing yeah. and, and, it, and it had gone it by then. And so- It was an interesting show. It was a very interesting very show interesting. and it was sort of a mixture of documentary and fiction yeah. and people like Carville and Madeline playing themselves. Yeah, yeah. Um, but then um, I saw In the Loop by chance at a screening before it opened and mm-hmm. I thought... Armando's show. Yeah, it, it, it was his movie, his it was movie. his feature. He, of course, was known for The Thick of It, which is a, a satire of 10 Downing Street and the British government in general mm-hmm. on the BBC. But um, In the Loop was the first time he dealt with American politics because it was really, a although the word Iraq is never mentioned, it was about the run-up to the war in Iraq. Some of it set in the British government, but a lot of it set in the State Department in Washington right. and hilarious. And I said, you know, this is the guy we should, I would hope, would do a show for us. It turned out he'd had a terrible experience in broadcast television. Oh, wow. When they had tr- a network that shall remain nameless. Over here. Over here. Yeah. Uh, American Network had tried to adapt the thick of it, unbeknownst to me, and it had been killed after its pilot. It had been censored heavily. It was a very unpleasant experience. But gradually, right. um, he came up with this idea. And the next thing you know, uh, Julia Louis-Dreyfus is in it, yeah. and casting it. And and then how did you join? So, and so I was asked by him and, and another executive producer who's been long associated with Armando named Chris Godsick mm-hmm. to join them. Cool. And from the very beginning, when the, it began, it's like, I don't know, a several-page proposal uh, sent from London, and um, we started talking, and uh, Julia hadn't even been cast yet. I mean, it was really an early stage, Mm -hmm. and I'm from Washington, D.C. Besides having covered as a journalist, I grew up there, and I've always felt that Washington is way too romantically uh, represented in movies and television. It's always, you know, the American president. It's always kind of glamorous. Even when it's scandalous, it's glamorous. West Ar- Wing style. Yes, Armando won my heart early on when he had a memo written for the production designers, and he said, "You know, Washington always looks so glamorous. These offices in the White House and the yeah. EOB looks so good. 
they really they're like holes, there's detritus and garbage yeah. around. Yeah. Everything's run down. Let's have that look. He said, he said um, costumes. Every and this is so true. Everyone in Washington dresses. Ten years behind New York, right? So, so, so he said. My wife always said when she, my wife was not from Washington. She always said, "What are they doing wearing white after Labor Day?" It's true, right, right, and, right. and that's what it's like. He said, except for Dan Egan. Dan Egan's uh, the the sharp sort of uh, hustling uh, aide who's trying yep. to Machiavellian played by Reed Scott. Yep. He said, "He's sharp. He's fashionable. Right. He's." He's three years ahead of all the other characters, which means he's seven years behind New, New York. York. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so it just, the show's been a natural fit for me as mm. a, to be involved as a producer, and it's a total blast to work on, I have to say. And so how do you, so, so again, you see this show, you didn't know what to expect, you said, and it now takes its place in, in amongst all these other um, major obsessions for um, American television audiences. What does that feel like? Like it's fun. It's yeah. fun that people are acknowledging the show, particularly the second season, where people seem to yeah, they, they cotton to on, it. Yeah. And and um, I'm very proud of the show because I really do feel, as a student of Washington, former resident of Washington, it really, really has something to say that's not preachy, uh, but captures something about the total absurdity. And I think. The moment for it is right because it's a time when Washington is famously not nothing's happening, nothing's, right. getting, nothing's done. getting done, and truth and the American way never went out in Veep. Right. <laughs> you know, just not even on the table. It's like, wait a minute, how can I, you right. know, manipulate this to my advantage? Yeah. And so, what about your the other half of your life or the other part of your life? Yeah, where it's you're, the biggest. It's, yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, it's it's uh, it's so interesting because a lot of my journalism is about. Washington and yeah. the news, as you were saying, but it's a completely different part of my brain, at least writing about writing nonfiction about the very real crises that we have in this country mm -hmm. and and government. It's like a yin and yang. So it's it's one is play, one is fiction, Veep, right. and one is, uh, and I'm not writing Veep. Right. My other stuff that I write is 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 more serious. Although I try to have some laughs when yeah. it's possible, yeah. and sometimes they do seem to sort of slightly overlap, but. It's a great. It's great. Great to have both. It's a lot right. of work, but mm -hmm. uh, and thank God for a technology where I can read page proofs on an iPad on a soundstage in Baltimore yeah. and and make changes as we're going to press at New York Magazine. Mm. So you can keep it a little bit separate. But what about like your colleagues who you know they are encountering you as a journalist in one hand, and then your show is on the weekend on Sunday night, and that's another part of you. Have, you know, have you pissed anyone off? How to, you know, how to, probably. because you're, you know, probably. you can keep them separate, but. Probably, I mean, I, I mean I'm certainly not writing about Veep in, in my journalistic job, no. but I think that, um, I think a lot of journalists are, first of all, a lot of journalists have worked and do work in television, there are a lot of people uh, who've come out of uh, journalism to, to be in touch, like David Simon, who was reported right. at the Baltimore Sun, who did The Wire, and more recently, right. Treme. So that's kind of a standard, this sort of going between. I think that as print journalism in particular is having a tough time of it, television looks more alluring as a place to work. That makes however, sense. However, when I went to HBO, I didn't want to do journalism at HBO. I feel I have enough of it in my life, so well, I've been involved with one documentary that's going to um, be shown in December. What's it about? 
It's about the songwriter Stephen Sondheim. Oh, cool! And it's and it's and, but you, it's a, you knew him. I I know right. him, and 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 um, it was one of the first things I talked about with HBO. But it's a one-off, and it's not about the news. It's about the whole career of this great he, American artist. Yeah. But I would not be. I can't imagine myself doing yeah. a documentary about politics. Okay, so let me ask you this then: When what what's at the center of Veep for you? It's the, for me, you know, I grew up loving the theater in Washington, crazily loving the theater since it's then and now, not that much culture in Washington. Um, and to me, it's sort of uh, actually a realization of, of uh, kind of a childhood desire to be involved in putting on a show. Well, that's wild. And, to, and, and the subject happens to be Washington and politics, but if the subject were, uh, you know, a meth dealer, uh, I would still, you know, or, or whatever, I would still enjoy it if it, if it was as, if as good as Veep. Yeah, so, um, so are you interested in doing more? I probably will do more, but I'm interested. I like the producing end. I'm not. I'm. I'm not a journalist who feels that I could write scripts. It's not my aspiration. I'm a prose writer and a and a sure, and, sure, and, sure. But but yes, I'm. I'm. I'm involved in developing some other stuff. Oh, you are. And okay, I may cool. Well, That's, yeah. yeah, completely yeah. outside of the world of Beltway politics or um, let me. Th- yes, one of them. Uh, you know, there's, as you know, these things are always very speculative, and I can't say. Too much, but sure. one of them, just to give you a sense of it, involves business in New York City. There's a cool. drama involving yeah. business in New York City. Another one, very, very early on, and it doesn't involve Washington, but does involve, how would I say it, geopolitics abroad. In, in another so. continent, another yeah. continent. But not, uh, no, this is the only Washington yeah. thing. Yeah. So this is like, Veep is a childhood dream literally come true. Um, and it's also potentially the beginning of a whole new part of your life, right? It's been pretty, unex- it's like an unexpected pregnancy, I yeah, tell yeah, people, yeah. you know. Uh, it's, it's been pretty exciting and I can't, I can't quite, I feel very lucky. Yeah. To be yeah. able to switch off between these two things. Yeah. Very, very lucky and. It and must be so satisfying. It, it is and I love, this sounds like such a cliche, I hate to say it, but. The people I work with at Veep, they're really artists of such high caliber, all of them, mm. and a joy to be around, and I'm learning a ton. Yeah. I am really learning stuff I didn't know. You yeah. know, I was a movie critic before I was a theater critic. I was a television critic for Time Magazine years ago, but I really, I think making it up as I went along, now right. I'm really understanding how it works, and it's uh, yeah. learning how it works for the first time for real, it's yeah. fun. It's an amazing debut, yeah, right? Lucky. Lucky. Um, okay, so let's turn to your the other part of your career, um, and um, you know there are a couple of things that you wrote in the last few years that really um, hit hit me. Um, one was my embed in red. Oh, and, thank you. Yeah. yeah, and I just wanted to know which, if you don't know, is uh, uh, your um, your it was a, a, a you basically immersed yourself in the bubble of. Right wing Repu- media, media um, during the um, during, during the election. Right. Where did it, it come from? It came from. It was actually it was the German was an idea to an editor at New York Magazine, and but I took it in a direction that perhaps wasn't entirely where I thought it would be. It's very easy to watch Fox News, and if you're basically on the liberal side of things, make fun of Fox News and deride it. 
But what I wanted to do was, I watched some of Fox News. Right. I watched a lot of Fox News. But I wanted to really get into the weeds of conservative websites, uh, radio, radio talk shows, but not just Rush Limbaugh. You know, I wanted to listen to a whole group of them, like uh, Michael Savage and Mark Levin, uh, uh, Dana Loesch. Mm -hmm. All these names may not even be known to the people. It's such a separate world, but these they have tons of uh, listeners. Mm -hmm. And what I learned is, first of all, there's some fantastically interesting uh, uh, people who are particularly in the writing side, but they're not the ones you usually hear about. They're not the ones, at, say, at the Weekly Standard or National Review, although right. sometimes they are, but also it, there's a magazine called The American Conservative. It's very iconoclastic, particularly mm -hmm. about American foreign policy, really smart people writing. Mm -hmm. you also, I also learned that you know the Republican Party with the conservative movement, the Republican Party are not synonymous. There are tremendous divisions within them. And I watched this whole debate. If you watched Fox News during the convention, it was this triumphant convention for Mitt Romney and, and Paul Ryan. If you listened to, and, and Clint Eastwood was brilliant and all the rest <laughs> of it. If you listened to Mark Levin, uh, Michael Savage, uh, Glenn Beck to some extent, you heard a whole different convention. They were arguing with it. They were angry about it. They thought that a lot of it was disingenuous. And I learned a lot. I learned much more about the right and the conservative mm -hmm. movement than I would by either, if I were watching Fox or the so-called mainstream media. And I realized that you know the mainstream media, which I'm part of, has often missed the story, and mm -hmm. I think still maybe to some extent. Mm -hmm. So you and so you, it's like a an experiment that you went into with good faith. It, totally, and I and 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 it was not a, an attempt to shoot fish in a barrel. Yeah, it was. It was really. I just I reported what I saw, and um, I wanted. Once I wrote the piece, I hoped it would make people attempted to actually go to the material I was talking about, go to these sites, and see whether you agree or disagree, see what's going on, because it's the, the Fox version and the Bill O'Reilly version is a caricature of them. Right. They're sort of They're closer to the mainstream media in a way than what's right. really going on in the right. And right. I think, as, and given that the right is a really ascendant movement uh, in the country, maybe not in a way that can win national elections, but it's a real part of the political fabric. It behooves people to learn what's really going on rather than the official sort of Rupert Murdoch version of what's going on. And how did that kind of make you feel at the end about the country and, and the electorate and the people? Did you, and, and, and also give us a sense of the numbers, how many people are, well, I think are that, in the rat, are tuned into that kind of red well, media. Well, uh, this may be slightly off from memory sake since it's been you know been some uh, a year basically since I wrote it. But m my memory is that, that at the high end of uh, talk radio, the viewers approach ten million plus, which is a lot when you think that that um, the top rated network news. Broadcast has five or six or maybe seven million viewers, if that. If that. And, uh, you know, everyone talks about how Fox News is by far the highest rated cable news, but still, that audience is actually small. 
It's bigger than CNN and MSNBC, but it's small compared to, to, to talk radio. Right. And um, I guess what I felt, I, you know, I'm fascinated by this country. Right. I think some of the stuff I heard was scary. Uh, some of it was interesting. Some of it I agreed with. There, you know, one of the most interesting things <laughs> what I... What did you agree with? What I, what I discovered is that the Bush-Cheney foreign policy, the sort of neoconservative policy of shaking up the Middle East and trying to build democracy in Iraq and so on, is really not where that the right is. They, they, and they didn't really like it going in, but 9-11 got them and the whole country to go in, and they didn't like it going out. And the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan became hugely unpopular on the right, yeah. and an and isolationist mood Really, really um, prevails, and right. in the sort of among some conservative intellectuals, they were appalled by convention speeches, including by like Condi Rice, who had been you know the Bush right. uh, cabinet member, um, about this interventionist foreign policy. They were appalled by Dick Cheney for reasons that would sound not unlike some liberals and right. some Democrats criticizing Bush. Right. Uh, Cheney foreign policy. And since I wrote that piece, you see it again on the issues of surveillance. There's a moment, there's a point where the left and the right do meet. Mm -hmm. Now, where it's un less pleasant is the, the vitriolic hatred of Obama. And and it's it's so vitriolic, and it's not, some of it is obviously tied to race, but some of it is just at least, if it's ra if when it's racist, you understand what it's about. But some of just so cockamamie theories that, you know, have him, you know, influenced by his father, who he met for ten minutes. You know, his father's yeah. radicalism and, and 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 Bill Ayers and all this stuff. And it's just that sort of loopy. But of course, there's always been conspiracy theorists in right. this country. Right. Um, and do you ever? So that was. Um, an experiment which served a purpose because it was, um, in, you know, conducted in the run-up to the election. Right. What's happening in there now, in that world now? Do you have any sense? Do you dip in? I do dip What's in because it's like an addiction. You know, you get into it, and it's and I I do, and I kept all. I don't. I, I mean, I'm I'm not spending hours listening to the radio anymore. There's only so many time in a day. Although when people like to hear. Just give you one example of something I, I, I think was in the piece. Mark Levin, who's uh, really right-wing, I mean extremely right-wing radio host, but mm -hmm. quite articulate, quite smart. Michael Savage, to hear them talk about how much they disliked the Romneys and how much they loathed Ann Romney because they, I think it was Michael Savage said, she's the kind of person that would, if I were at a country club, she'd think I was like, a garage attendant who treat me right. like dirt, you know, kind of woman that wouldn't look at me. I mean, there's really a lot of class right. stuff going on. Fascinating yeah. this is on wow. that side. Right. I think um, as I tune into it now, not so much the radio, but the the the, the, the readable component, particularly on the web, there, it's a really divided party. This, right. you know, it. There's a reason why there were all these candidates that collectively were getting more votes than Mitt Romney in the in the primaries because right. that is the base of the party. Mm -hmm. Now Romney's gone and the substitute for Romney is I would say probably in the to these this group Chris Christie whom they loathe because they regard him as too moderate and not just cuz not just cuz of his putting his arm around No, they regard him as just too moderate and uh, spends too much money and 
and right. Uh, they they have been analyzing his. Uh, um, you know, his uh, government, government spend. Well, there's spending. a whole Rand Paul fight with him. Right. And, of course, it turns out Rand Paul took more money from Washington than Chris Christie, but whatever. Right. <laughs> uh, oh, Kentucky did, I should say. But but, but um, uh, there's a real, real division, and some of it's class as well as policy. Yeah. And you have, and you see it in the fight over immigration reform because the Bushes, the Wall Street Journal editorial page, they're all for immigration reform, but except for Marco Rubio, the rising stars in the, and and Christie is for it, but the rising stars like Rand Paul and Ted Cruz are not for immigration right. reform. They regard it as amnesty, and it's a really fascinating. I find it riveting, much more interesting than anything that's happening in the Democratic Party. Yeah, and so do you see, um, a, you know, a, a, a one cast of these characters emerging as like really dominant, leading into the next. Too early to tell. Too early to yeah, tell. Too early to tell. Yeah. I mean, big money is behind the what remains of the establishment of the GOP. It's the group that supported Romney. You know, they're, the Koch brothers are in favor of immigration reform, right? Uh, for instance, um, but the base really is not, and so it's a real sort of civil war. But what makes it more interesting than the Democrats is that they do have in Christie, Paul, Rubio, Cruz, mm -hmm. they have a bunch of plausible, a new generation of pl plausible. Mm -hmm. Candidates, what everyone thinks, they're much more plausible than mm -hmm. Michelle Bachman and Herman Cain. What's the bench for the Democratic Party? Hillary Clinton Hillary and Joe Clinton. Biden. Right. You know, that's sort of what everyone thinks of them. It's a little bit of yesterday. Right. So it's uh, Democrats have, I don't know what, where the Democrats going to be post Obama. Right, right. Um, one other thing about Embed uh, um, um, uh, and Red. Do you, do you, can you tell us a little bit about what the Tea Party really says, and 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 where that energy or voice has gone now? Because it seems a little bit like you the people. That. Well, the people that really identify themselves as Tea Partiers are kind of they're not in the spotlight right now. You don't hear from them. As uh, my colleague at New York Magazine, uh, Jonathan Shade, has written, mm. the Republican Party now has the the very con the extreme conservative and the very conservative. Those right. are the, two, the extreme conservative. They may not call themselves Tea Partiers, but when but when people in the mainstream uh, press say, "Oh, the Tea Party is faded," and so on, the name is faded, but those people are there, and right. they are. And if you turn on the radio or read the kind of stuff I'm talking about, their views have not changed at all. Right. Wow. You know, they're having to get, everyone's having to adjust the fact they're not going to have Obama to kick around anymore. Right. And, 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 they're, and, that's a, that's, and that's, also, people are licking their wounds because they, they, they lost. got licked. They, so got, they got licked. Yeah. Um, let's switch um, to maybe one or two other things sure. real quickly. Um, on, on Snowden. Mm -hmm. And um, you wrote a piece in the, in the, in the New York um, magazine, right? On, yes. Um, about the, that I felt the loss that, of privacy. Yeah, I feel that. Um, what look the revelations that Snowden has uh, cast into into light through uh, essentially through the Guardian, which has done a terrific job, the newspaper, the Guardian, of reporting it and vetting it, um, are pretty pretty shocking. However, I don't think. Well, it caused a lot of outrage among 
people who are politically passionate and the government and the and the, yes the government and the and the press people on the sort of libertarian right and the liberal left i think that the, one of the strangest things that's happened to our culture is that people like to surrender their privacy i think it's one of the great revel revel revolutions or i don't know if it's great but a real revolution is that people want to be out there and they want to shop. That's always been an American impulse. And so they're willing, and I'm as guilty of this as anyone, to give all my information to mm. Apple and Amazon and anyone else who wants it if it'll let me get a book a day faster or get an internet app that, uh, or, a, an, or a, you know, an I, I, iPad app that will make my life simpler, like Google Maps. All right, fine, here's mm -hmm. where I am. Mm -hmm. Make it easier mm -hmm. to get from where I am now to point B. So I think this didn't, people were willing to, to sort of shrug their shoulders. So I, I, I agree with you. I think the, the public um, outcry was, you know, was, was threadbare because, like mm -hmm. you said, people are just surrendering a lot of their data already. Um, but, but how do you feel about the case itself? And do you feel like he's, a whistleblower, or do you think it was a criminal act, or? And, well, and, and it's, it's it's technically a criminal act. It's not treason. He wasn't giving secrets to the enemy. That you know, the, the ridiculous uh, case made against uh, Manning. You know, um, he's a whistleblower, and whistleblowers—they're uh, like any kind of journalistic source. Really, they always have their own motives, and. They're often willing to take the fall, mm -hmm. and Snowden has been back and forth about about that, and we'll see what happens a year from now, whatever. But uh, I think you can't have this. It's, he's not a hero. He's not a traitor. He's a whistleblower. He had his reasons. The ver by bizarre coincidence, the very first sort of big piece, sort of my big break in journalism was through a fluke when I was a senior in college. I met Daniel Ellsberg in what turned out to be the year that he was getting the Pentagon Papers. I didn't know, didn't that. know that, what, but what happened was he, he was teaching at MIT. He, was a, he had been in the Rand Corporation, worked for McNamara and Defense. I was on the Harvard Crimson where he had been 15 years earlier when he had been an undergraduate or right. 20 years earlier. He would come and hang around with me and my friends and tell us these incredible stories about McNamara and Kissinger. And he said he, he knew this firsthand. We didn't know whether he was a maniac or right. it was real. As we were graduating, the Times starts running the Pentagon Papers, literally our graduation week, and we all start reading them, and we said, oh, these are all stories that were told to us by Dan Ellsberg. He was not known to be the source. Right, he wasn't. He hadn't been identified right. yet. I ran into him in Harvard Square. Where during that time? During, that, during the day it broke, he's buying like six copies of the New York Sunday Times, which had the first installment of the Pentagon. And I said, Dan, and he gave me this sort of sheepish look, and I said, I want to do a story about you. <laughs> and so what happened was, he told me, he said, I'm going underground. He, had not been, he didn't say he had done it. And then <gasps> what followed was a wild goose chase where he was First, he wasn't known. Then it was revealed, someone revealed he was the source. Then he was on the lam from the FBI, and I'm talking to him, this is primitive technology. 
He's calling me from phone booths. I later find out that my, my parents who lived in Washington, because I made, he called me once when I was home, they had been bugged, I had been bugged, I was called into the FBI at one point. But I wrote a big profile of him for Esquire, 10,000 word profile that came out late in 71. What I learned from that piece is there really is a type of person who's a whistleblower. So was he, he was motivated as Snowden was by being furious at what his government was doing and it's a fury I shared, but he was quite happy at the time to be martyred for it. I mean, he was happy, happy isn't the right word, I don't wanna put words in his mouth, but he was content with the fact that he would probably be prosecuted. He and wasn't fleeing. He was not fleeing and ultimately he was, you know, they, they failed to make the case, but ultimately he was apprehended. He wasn't fleeing. I think what he was trying to do was to get his ducks in a row and get his story out there because he ultimately talked to other journalists besides me um, and wanted to do it on his own terms, which he did. And he's, of course, been a big supporter, big supporter of, of Snowden, Snowden now. and of Julian Assange. And they're all sort of similar personality types, and I don't have a moral judgment about them. They are who they are. It's mm. what they're whistleblowers, mm. and it's uh, and as a journalist, you have to decide what to take seriously, what not, what's bravado, what's real information that mm -hmm. the world can use. It seems like he's pissed off a lot of people because he went to Hong Kong. Yeah, that was and crazy. Dealt with the Chinese, and then went to Russia, and is now. Right, and if El and if Ellsberg, and if Ellsberg had gone to China or, or the Soviet, then the Soviet Union, people would have had the same yeah. reaction because yeah. that's what people want yeah. to believe. You're a traitor, yeah. and you're you know, and also it looks hypocritical because you're involved with it the looks bad. It looks bad. It looks bad. But you know, he's whatever. You know, it's like not knowing what's inside someone's marriage. Yeah. You don't know. Yeah. You don't really know what he's thinking. I mean, we've yeah. all seen the same interviews with him. But the information is the information and sure. should be judged, in my view, independently of the person who sure. put it out there. It's certainly a bad moment for um, U.S.-Russia relations. What, what's, project out a little bit, what, what's the future of relations between the two countries? And maybe you can somehow jam Syria in there, because I'd like to probably end with a discussion of Arab Spring and... and well, I feel, uh, I, I hardly consider myself an expert on, on Russian-American relations. My, my own feeling is, this too will pass. I really, I really do. I feel uh, the situation with Syria right. and the situation with the Middle East, and as we're talking, what's going on in Egypt is just a the roiling disaster. And I think anyone who knows how it's going to straighten itself out is much smarter than I am, because you know we, I, I remain convinced that the war in Iraq uh, was a mistake, right. and we should have. I thought the war in Afghanistan was the right idea to go after bin Laden when he was there. And, but now? Uh, now, uh, when you say now, what, what piece of it well, do you Well, I mean this kind of, I don't know, the, the kind of dirty war, the, sort of the failed reconstruction of um, the country, which is coming to light more and more. Both countries, much, I both, mean. Both countries, um, but also this kind of, you know, weird you know, drone-led, covert-op-led, you know... Oh, um, I agree. I, warfare. Oh, this is what, when I said that, I approve, that's not what I was talking yeah, about. Absolutely, yeah, okay, I agree. Yeah. I agree with you. No, and I feel um, 
it's disturbing to me that Obama has continued so much of the national security policy, if anything, made it even a little bit spookier or, or less transparent, if that's possible, than it was under Bush and Cheney, that it's not clear what the ends are, and it's really not clear... I don't understand what we're doing in terms of fighting terrorism. I mean, I understand some things we're doing, but we're, it is becoming like whack-a-mole again with now civilians being hit along the way right. uh, in a tragic and, and seemingly uh, pretty num high numerical uh, fashion. Right. Um, for collateral. Uh, right. right. For, and we And we... But even the targets are kind of questionable as well. Exactly. And we don't have a plan. I mean, so John Kerry goes over and announces we're going to have, you know, we're going to have peace between Israel and the Palestinians. Well, how does that, A, it, it sounds like the same false hopes, and everyone seems to think it is that we've always had about this, but where does that fit in to what we're trying to deal with Syria, now Egypt, and and uh, not to mention as we leave Afghanistan and, mm -hmm. and Iraq, and it's a hornet's nest. And the, I, I think Obama's right that the, the Bush administration fought a dumb war in Iraq and turned it over, but he inherited it, and it's just not clear. I, I was very disturbed by, uh, I have to say, the ostracization, essentially, of Richard Holbrook before he died, who I thought was maybe the smartest Did, person. I don't, I'm, what happened? What happened was that, that basically Obama didn't like him, and, didn't, and, 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 and a lot of it's emerged since Holbrook's death, right. and didn't really listen to him and didn't want to listen to him, and Holbrook was kept in the, as according to some accounts, would have been fired had it not been for Hillary Clinton's intervention. Right. But he wasn't taken seriously, and you know, and there have been accounts since his death that part of his uh, physical collapse was just out of frustration and horror because he, he, he wasn't being heard and wasn't being taken seriously. And what seriously. was he lobbying for? I think he was lobbying for us not getting in deeper this way. That seems to be uh, what he was doing and making as was his want certain Vietnam analogies because, of course, he had been a young diplomat mm -hmm. in Vietnam, began his career there. and um, But he really could hardly get a meeting with the president, according to what we're, we've been reading since he died. Wow. And um, I'm sure at some point we'll learn more, but it's, it is... It is you know, I have to say, not that they have a better idea, the Republicans, but when they say it's not a coherent foreign policy, they certainly have a point. They, they do. And, yeah. and now, that what's their coherent foreign policy? Bomb everybody. I'm, I'm being facetious, but essentially, you know, uh, they want, you know, John McCain, if he's a spokesman for the Republican foreign, uh, foreign policy, essentially arm everyone in Syria and you know, be strong in Syria, but what does that mean? To what extent are we uh, you know, going to make the same mistake of arming the people who want to destroy America, you know, mm -hmm. ra radical Islamists and mm -hmm. so on? We don't, we don't, the lines are not mm -hmm. clearly drawn. Mm -hmm. And when you were embedded in red, what do, what did, what's the consensus about John McCain there? Does he have a very a small... They, they, they don't... absolutely regard him as a clown. Right. They're dismissive of him. They're dismissive of his foreign policy ideas, but they, re they regarded him. And this went on even during the 2008 campaign. Mm -hmm. You know, if he hadn't put Palin on the ticket, he wouldn't have even gotten a second look from these people. Right. Uh, sadly, but he no, he's regarded as a as a yesterday's news. 
But one other thing, just to go back to the Arab Spring and to Iraq and Afghanistan and the Middle East and Syria and the Middle East, the most alarming thing, arguably, from the domestic point of view, is the country just doesn't give a damn about any of it. You know, in this country. This country. Right. And so there can be all the debate we want on Sunday morning shows and between the Republicans, between John McCain and the Democrats about foreign policy, you and I can talk about drones and surveillance, but the the country, there were at least a little bit of surveillance, the domestic surveillance, but once it goes beyond America's shores, Afghanistan, Syria, they didn't even register as issues in polling in right. 2012. And the Republicans tried to make a big thing out of the Benghazi incident. And whatever the merits of the case, and I'm still not convinced what they are, but let's assume it did have some merit, Mm -hmm. their argument did have some merit, Um, the public didn't care. Mm -hmm. You know, for Romney to make a big point of it in a debate, people just tuned out. Mm -hmm. And that's because they're so, these wars have been hideously long. No one knows what we have to show for them. And so now you have a situation where foreign policy d- debate happening with the country not involved. Right. And, and um, there are complicated situations. If you look at, um, you know, post-revolutionary Egypt for, a, you know, even a, a learned outsider to analyze the situation on the ground and understand the dynamics between different, um, you know, uh, uh, opposition groups and the, the Muslim Brotherhood and it's just, and soccer teams and it's intercity so, rivalry. It's so well, complicated. It's so complicated in, in, in Egypt, at least. We had real presence and supposedly knew what was going on, but it turned out we really didn't know what was it's going on. It's amazing how and we, and because that's amazing. not it's not like that's uh, uh, North Korea and hidden off from the world. We didn't really know what was going on in Turkey, did we? I mean, it's really it's and so, so that was a really surprising and and and. and, and Erdogan's reaction, I think, took a lot of people by surprise as well, because we thought, or we, I'm pretending I'm all of America, but people thought he was more moderate, you know? He's Absolutely, the, the I cool did. guy in the region trying to get into Europe, and here he, he's, like, calling Twitter evil and shit like that. It's I know, just, but I was fooled, too, and right. and... And I think it's just compounded by the fact that uh, it's happening in a vacuum in terms of democratic debate here because people really were, tr- that's one of the biggest mm-hmm. Bush legacies. When everyone thinks of those wars, they turn people off. They don't want to just go anywhere near that part of the world. Right, right. That's one of the tragedies is that the interventionism turned people away from caring about, about those places. About any of it, good Including or bad. Including the humanitarian aspects. Yeah, good or bad, good or bad. Okay, two quick last things. Um, and uh, one is about um, the coup. And the, ha- the, the coup that happened in Egypt. Oh, you mean the one we said is not oh, well, a coup? Okay, sorry, I call it a I'm, I'm joking, I'm joking you, I'm okay, just joking. Okay. It, it, it's a coup. Yeah, it you is might, a coup. You might like it or not. And no, it's definitely I, a coup, but know, I'm saying we, the American government had this fiction that it wasn't a coup yeah. because of the billion dollar billion and a half dollars in aid. Right. It triggered they, they yeah. couldn't. Right. Yeah. And in solidarity for the good right side they you know acquiesced into into you know uh, uh, using the proper name for it. But it was a coup and, and Of course it was. Yeah and and I not that it matters to anyone or this discussion, but I was definitely torn because 
I did think that it was a coup and that this would be a setback to the long process that these people have ahead of them of adopting democracy, even if the first phase of this doesn't look appealing to us, at least they feel like we're going to come and join this world club of democracies. You have to at least respect what we voted on. But at the other side of it, uh, I, I you know, fully believe that the wrong people were in power. And not only were they wrong because I don't believe in their ideology, I think they were wrong because they were dismantling the very right. democratic institutions that they were supposed to Right, and brought. so then what, but there's no good side in this, because <laughs> then what happens is we have now essentially, what do you want to call it, mass murder? I don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, uh, as we're talking, the death toll's going above 500. Yeah. I think we have a paucity of information, and I'll, I'll say something else that's hurting our ability to affect the situation or, or understand the situation. News organizations have declined, you know, and, and uh, so... If you turn on, I'll, I'll, I will not name a network, but I, every, every night, and I rotate among them, I DVR the 630 News, one of the three broadcast networks, not because that's how I get my news, but because I want to see what's out there in the zeitgeist. What sure. is the mass idea of news? Right. And what I've learned during the, the entire Egypt, since the coup in Egypt, most nights, it doesn't even make the newscast, weather... Uh, leads uh, a resort near Disney World imploding into the ground, which is on page A23 at the bottom at the Times, leads the evening news, gets five minutes, and then it leads the next night because we know you were curious and hearing more about it, Uh, any kind of abduction case. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it's not even, and and it's not just an editorial judgment. They just don't have, most of these, don't have the boots on the ground right. to cover it. Right. I mean, Vice is is a really interesting, and there are other examples, antidote to that. But in the mass mainstream media, it's just not there's just mm-hmm. not a lot of coverage. There's the New York Times, and there's the Economist, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, there there are enough people to just report on an event, but not to stay and give it a context and, and live there and give it a context and, and meet I, the people and exactly yeah. you understand it better yeah. than anyone and i feel that's one reason why we're all blindsided by egypt turkey right everything because we don't we're know. deaf to the to the context and to the the nuances on the ground it's very it? hard for anyone no matter what their opinion is about these issues or what they do in life to step out of their own comfort zone in their own community whatever it is yeah. and the the irony or the paradox of the moment we live in is it's more easy to access, you know, you can read any foreign paper and probably get Google to translate it you want in real time. Yeah. Not like when I was going up, wait a month for one to be mailed in from the out-of-town in an out-of-town mm-hmm. newsstand. You can listen to radio all around the world. You can watch right. television all around the world. You can watch ordinary people blogging, read them. So it's all there. Much of it is free, and you don't even have to leave your your computer. But people get entrenched. Yeah, we're more connected than ever, but not making all of the connections that we that 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 are at our disposal. That are at our disposal. I think that'll change. One last thing, um, because I think it's so important. We talked. You touched upon it briefly, but um, Carrie is. 
you know, embarking on a on a on a mission. Now. Right. And how do you feel about it? And given the turmoil that we, uh, you know, um, talked about ar- around, um, you know, uh, Israel and, and Palestine right now, how do you feel? Is, is are you hopeful? I'm. I, I want to be hopeful. I would love. You know, I am uh, a Jewish. B um, would want to see. Israel survive and in peace with its neighbors. I do feel that uh, you know the, the the current government of Israel is just dug in a way that's, in my view, counter to Israel's interests. And I'd like, and I think everyone knows there has to be a two-state solution, mm-hmm. that these settlements have to be pulled back and all the rest of it. But do I really think that in the midst of all this chaos in the Middle East that John Kerry, however altruistic and smart and seemingly determined and wanting for his own legacy to do it, can accomplish it? We've been disappointed too many times. I hate to be a pessimist, um, but I'd be shocked. And uh, it's tragic, really, I think, what's, what's going on there. But now it's, there's so many moving pieces. Look, the whole fate of Egypt, which is unknown as we speak, could have a profound impact on what happens with Israel. And some rebels in the last 72 hours, I think, in Egypt were launching rockets into Israel. So there you go. So it's so it's so volatile. This coast, southern coast, uh, a resort town in Israel. So I understand where John Kerry's coming from. I approve of what he's doing. I think it's noble and patriotic and. He's not running for public office again. It's completely selfless, and it's and so many before him have failed. But I'm I, I, you know, he's not Superman, and I just I just don't see it, particularly against the backdrop. Uh, when he started this, Egypt was already in meltdown, mm-hmm. but now it's even melted down so much more. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, um, I hate to end it well, on so such a happy so, note. Such a happy note, but uh, we wish um, Kerry all of the luck because it's so important and I think um, if there was even any progress, any concessions that, that can be called a win for both sides, I think it would have huge uh, effect on all of this turmoil in the region. And if, if in the midst of this you know, Arab spring and, and, and winter now, um, that, that Israel and Palestine can make a, like even one baby step forward, I think it would be well, ha- like a hallelujah. As they moment. say in so- my religion, from your mouth to God's ears. Yeah. You know, uh, absolutely. I hope so. Oh, it was really great talking great to talking you. To you Let's it do really, it again. I'd love it.